everyone wants to be spiritual. Everyone wants a spiritual experience. However, many are uninformed. That's essentially the problem that was happening in Corinth. We want to have some sensational experience. We want to see things happen. We want to see miracles. We want to see prophecy. We want to see healing. We want to see cool things happen. Yet they all have no clue what they're talking about. They have no clue what true spirituality actually is. That's what he's saying here in verse 1. Brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. Verse 2, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. He's saying, remember, Corinthians, you've been duped before. So when we start talking about the spirituals, this question, Corinthian church, that you're asking me, talk to us now about the spirituals, the gifts. Paul says, just remember, you've been duped before into false spirituality, into a a worship of idols which are absolutely powerless. And he says in verse 3, therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now what's he saying? Here's the question that we can start out with and and begin to understand this passage. If you were to look for a spiritual church, what would you look for? I wonder how you would answer that. If you were to look for a spiritual movement of people, a gathering of people that would be really spiritual, what would be some of the things that you're looking for in that church? In the early 1700s, there was a revival in America. Today, we call it the Great Awakening. It was led by names like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. These were preachers of the gospel who God used their preaching. The Spirit descended on the hearts of mankind, and through the preaching of the gospel, thousands and thousands of people were converted. It was an unbelievable revival in America. Now, about 70 years after that, there was another, another so-called revival, which we now call the Second Great Awakening, um, in which a number of people said, we want to continue to experience what happened 70 years before. We want to normalize this great movement of God that happened. We want it to be part of our weekly experience. And so during the second movement, the second revival, it was less the Spirit coming down, the Spirit condescending to the hearts of mankind through the preaching of the gospel, and it was more Christians trying to reach up and pull down the Spirit. Do you see the difference? It was more Christians trying to do things to create a sense of sensationalism, a sense of revival. And so then emotions would be appealed to. Preaching became something where, where toward the end it was this emotional draw so that we could get a lot of people coming down to the altar. People, decisions would be made. Cards would be filled out. And after a year, people would be back into their old lifestyle. What was happening? Now this created a shift in American Christianity. Over the last 200 years, we have seen different ways that this has worked itself out, various movements and various churches which have sought to sort of pull down the spiritual, which have sought to do things to normalize the great movement of the Spirit of God. So, for, for example, uh, 2008, my home college town where I went to school, the so-called Lakeland Revival, uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are being drawn to this movement in Lakeland, Florida. And then it sort of went spiral like one of these Upworthy videos on Facebook. All right? It went, went viral, rather. And it was global. And it was massive. And it was, it was sort of like 
uh, rock and roll meets like old school Pentecostalism, all right? It was just this, since this exciting thing, all right? The guy leading it was cool, and he was like knocking people out, like literally. He was muscular, sort of looked like me, and, and thousands of people are being drawn to this, uh, supposed healings all over the place. I mean, through television sets and phone calls about someone is in Lakeland, and they, they talk with somebody else, and all of a sudden they're supposedly healed. All of these people drawn to this. Why? Because we are looking for a spiritual experience. We're looking for something that says this is supernatural. This is exciting. This is amazing. This is sensational. Now, unfortunately, as so many of these experiences have gone in the past, this so-called revival ended in shambles. It was found that the leader was in an adulterous relationship with staff members leading the revival. Other grievous sins being committed among those leading the revival. Now, thousands and thousands of people who are what? Disillusioned. I don't know what I just experienced. I know there was something, but I'm left empty. What is a true, truly spiritual church? I mean, if we, see, if we could say this is a group of people that's truly spiritual, do we even have the, I don't know, the, the, the framework to be able to understand what is truly spiritual? Now, what Paul is saying here in verse 3, if, we, if you look at it, the verse that we just read, he says something that is absolutely remarkable and that we need to hear. He says, the spirit, nobody says, or no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Look what he's doing. At the beginning of his discussion on a spiritual church and utilizing spiritual gifts and being a spiritual body, the foundation, he says, is this. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Spirit. Meaning, how do we know when someone is in the Spirit of God. How do we know when someone is influenced by the Holy Spirit of God? The Holy Spirit of God is all about Jesus. No one can say Jesus is Lord unless they are in the Spirit. Someone said to me once, Joel, your sermons, while long and boring, I just added that part, thought it might get a chuckle. Your sermons always have Jesus at the center, and that's fine. He's a person of the Trinity, but why not have the Holy Spirit at the center of your sermons? Why not talk more about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit is, is helpful? Now, the Holy Spirit is helpful, and it is a huge doctrine, but why not, Joel, make the Holy Spirit the central point of your sermons. Why do you always have to have Jesus as, as the central point of all your sermons? Now, I, I think that's an honest question and a fine question, and here was my response. Jesus is at the center of all of my sermons because the Holy Spirit wants Jesus to be at the center of all of my sermons. Why is it that, I, that, that we would lift up Jesus and say, as we come together as a church, as a body, every Sunday, and Jesus is Lord. Why do we do that? It's because the Holy Spirit wants us to do, to do that. The Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity that prefers to point away from Himself. The Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity that serves us as He activates our faith in who? Christ. So nobody then can say Jesus is Lord unless they are filled with and driven by the Holy Spirit of God. So then what is a spiritual foundation as we begin to understand what a spiritual church is? Here we are, we're drawn to the miraculous. We want to talk a lot about maybe the Holy Spirit or the amazing things that are happening, or sensational things, healings, whatever. We want to lift up the guy that's up here maybe doing what I'm doing. 
the people that are at the center, people that have gifts that really wow you. We're drawn to the sensational. What he is saying as the very foundation is this. Far beyond anything sensational. I mean, at the end goal, even with the revivals, even with wow sort of miracles, those things even serve the greater point, and that is to lift up Jesus. What is a truly spiritual church at the very foundation, at the very core? He says it's when somebody says, Jesus is Lord. All right, so we could go to a charismatic church and it's loud and it's banging and someone stands up and and we see Jesus is Lord. Then we say that is a spiritual church. And then we go to a Presbyterian church and it's quiet and there's hymn books and it's somber and they at the end of the day say Jesus is Lord and we say that is a spiritual church. Because the true miracle is not when somebody's healed. It's not when something miraculous happens. The true miracle is this. It's when a human being who was dead in their sins, I mean like Romans 1 kind of dead, turning to idols. If you had a thousand opportunities, you would still choose sin over Christ every stinking time. It's when an individual that is that dead, all right, swollen at the bottom of the ocean, dead, comes to life. When the Holy Spirit moves and activates their being and their soul and their faith and they see Christ and they trust in Christ and Christ becomes the Lord of their lips and the Lord of their life. That is true spirituality. That's what we want to see. All right? Now we could close there, and that could be a fine sermon, but that's just my introduction. All right? Amen? Um, that's, that's basically what Paul's saying. All right, we'll just, <laughs> that's a, the gist of it. Um, now, my, my aim this morning is, uh, is, is to talk about what a truly spiritual church is. All right? Paul doesn't want us to be uninformed. I think Paul is looking at the Corinthian church and he loves them. And he knows that they are drastically uninformed. And they're going to fake kinds of spirituality and they're, 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 they're like prone to this. And so Paul wants them to know what a truly spiritual Corinthian church looks like. So what that means is this. As we get into this chapter, this is less of a, uh, uh, an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts This is less of a proof text for certain spiritual gifts. What this is really is a blueprint for a spiritual church. All right? So I typically in my sermons try to stick to like, you know, three points. It's what a good preacher does. Um, But today I have seven points. All right? Because we're talking about what a truly spiritual church is. And so it just requires four more points. Okay? Okay? But I'm going to make it easy for you. My seven points conveniently make up one sentence, all right? So I'm going to give you this sentence, and then I'm going to break it down into my seven points. Cool? Here's my sentence. A truly spiritual church consists of people, that's my first point, with a diversity of gifts as one body whose members are not jealous whose members are not proud. That's my fifth point. You see how we're doing this? Serving one another with joy. That's my sixth point. To become a manifestation of Jesus. So this is our blueprint for what a spiritual church is, and we're breaking this down into seven different uh, parts. Part number one. Are you ready? A spiritual church consists of people. Let's just stop right there. We're talking here about people. Now, something you need to know is that this idea of a gathering um, is actually somewhat new to history. Meaning the pagans didn't gather together on, say, a Tuesday night for, for a small group. And then Thursday nights for their sort of corporate gathering or whatever. Uh, 
outside of what we see here happening in the Christian movement, what we find is, is that spirituality comes down to places, like, say, a temple. And there's no need for everybody to be together at the same time because there's no such thing as a body of people. It's just individuals experiencing this religion. And so you could go to the temple anytime you wanted to throughout the week. But something, something was fairly new to human history with the birth of the Christian movement as not only did we come together randomly as human beings, but intentionally, on a regular basis. People gathering together under a shade tree. People gathering together in a cathedral with stained glass. People gathering together in an elementary school. What we're talking about when we talk about a spiritual church is a people. Now, this also should distinguish us from talking about a place. So we're not talking about a spiritual place. We don't say, well, I want to be in like an environment that's spiritual. I want to be in a place that's, that's spiritual. The Bible doesn't understand that. Um, so we could talk about like a beautiful cathedral with stained glass, and we walk in, ooh, this feels spiritual, right? You know, some of the spiritually coldest places I've been in my life are cathedrals with stained glass where the Holy Spirit has left the, build, the building we're talking about a people that come together, all right? But not just any people. Point number two, a spiritual church consists of people with a diversity of gifts. So people that come together with a diversity of gifts. Look at verse four. He says, now there are a varieties of gifts. Let's just stop right there. That's the word charismata. Now, why does that word matter? It matters because it's a different word than the word that's used in verse 1. So they inquire, talk to us about this, the, the, the spiritual gifts. The word that's used in verse 1 is a general word that could be translated the spirituals, or maybe a general word for spiritual gifts. And Paul says, okay, you want to talk about the spirituals or the spiritual gifts? Fine. Let's talk about, and then he changes the word in verse 4. Charismata, which literally means grace gifts. So you want to talk about the spirituals. All right, let's talk about grace. Because you can't talk about spirituality without talking about grace. You want to talk about the gifts? Generally, fine. Let's talk about the grace gifts. Do you see what he's doing? What he's first saying, and, and, and let me just say this, you might not have any background in church, uh, and that's cool, and you don't know what spiritual gifts are, that's totally fine. I just want to give you a sample here, a, a, a brief definition. What Paul is saying is this, a spiritual gift is not something that's just a natural ability of yours. It's not something that you can just do really well, all right? So like somebody that plays the guitar, that's not a spiritual gift. Great natural ability, God-given, but that's not what he's talking about here. A spiritual gift is also not something that you work for and, 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 and sort of attain that, so that you can now be puffed up. No, it's called a grace gift. A spiritual gift is something, it's a, it's, a, it's a unique ability that God has given to every believer so that you might serve the body of Christ. So he says, let's talk here about the grace gifts in verse 4, but the same, there's a variety of them, but there's the same spirit, there's a variety of service, but the same Lord, there's a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Today, it's popular uh, to say that we want to be diverse. Diversity is a popular concept today in, in American culture. The problem is this. In American culture, we define diversity along with individualism, which means when we say be diverse, or we, like we like diversity, what we're saying really is we like individualism, meaning be your own you. Don't be like everyone else. Do your own thing. Don't conform to anyone else. Right? Dress your own. I mean, be you. 
And so diversity, our love for diversity in our culture is actually very closely associated with individualism. What Paul is talking about here is not individualism, but he's talking about a Trinitarian kind of diversity. Let me show you what I mean by that. It's easy to read through these, but I want, I want to pause here. In verse 4 and verse 5 and verse 6, we see the Trinity present. If you look closely at verse 4, we see the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, we see the Lord or the Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 6, we see God, which is usually the reference for the Father. What Paul is saying is this, when we want to talk about the diversity of spiritual gifts, we want to talk about the diversity in a church, we need to talk about the Trinity. One theologian said that God loves diversity so much that every single snowflake is unique. We could say God loves diversity so much that every single human being is unique. No one really looks like you. Look around, just really quick. Look around, look at everybody. If you see somebody nodding off, give them a nudge. You know, listen, this is time to wake each other up. Um, nobody really looks exactly like you, do they? Isn't that interesting that God created us in His image? Unique, diverse, different from one another. You see, the Father is uniquely the Father. In His role in salvation, the Father elects and sets His affection upon. The Son, Jesus Christ, is uniquely the Son. He doesn't serve in the role of the Father. He submits to the will of the Father and He comes into this world to redeem sinful man. The Holy Spirit is uniquely the Holy Spirit. Not like the Father, not like the Son. The Holy Spirit exists to work in the hearts of mankind to wake us up to Christ. The Trinity, God, unique, diverse. And so now when we talk then about spiritual gifts, we talk about what God is doing in our midst, we must know that we're talking not about an individualistic kind of diversity, but a Trinitarian kind of diversity. Now, what we see here then is he gives us a sampling of different kinds of gifts. We see this in verses 8 through 10. This list isn't meant to be an exhaustive list of all spiritual gifts, but I think it's just a sample. Let's look at it. We don't have time to dive into each one, <clears throat> but briefly, verse 8, we see the gift of wisdom that's given to some. This could be a unique ability to explain how Christ is the fulfillment of all and how Christ is the only way. Remember, Christ is the foundation and the reason all gifts exist. We see in verse 8 the gift of knowledge. Now, this wouldn't be some freaky kind of supernatural knowledge like I'm getting this sense of what's happening on the other side of the world right now. But rather in the context of 1 Corinthians, when we talk about knowledge, we're talking about knowing God in Christ. And so whatever this gift is, it's a, it's a certain unique God-given ability to see and experience and relate and, 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 and uh, communicate God in Christ. We see in verse 9 the gift of faith. Now some Christians, all Christians have saving faith, but some Christians have these like enormous mustard seeds, all right? And I know that's like a contra contradictory uh, in, in terms. But like these mustard seeds of faith, the kind of faith that can move mountains that is inspiring, all right? There are times that I get to the end of myself. Like I am down and frustrated and doubting. And some of you with the gift of faith have come along and you have encouraged me with the promises of God, with a smile on your face, trust in Christ. My wife has the gift of faith. All right, this, this enormous mustard seed kind of faith. Moving on. The gift of healing. Now it's interesting here that this is a plural, meaning there's different kinds of gifts of healing. This means that we shouldn't think that there's just one healer, you know, one person that everybody's coming to and they're knocking them on the head, all right? But in this context, whatever the gift of healing is or was happening, there were different kinds of healers literally, miraculously healing people of illness. 
In verse 10, we see the working of miracles. Mm. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, dead by the word of Peter. That's a, that's a gift of miracle right there. Causing blindness in Acts chapter 10. Miracles for the glory of God. We see prophecy, possibly a foretelling of what's to come or, or uniquely being able to apply and, and speak to and confront individuals from the Word. The gift of tongues, speaking in various languages. Now one question that is important at this point is these more miraculous gifts, healing, uh, the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy. Do these gifts still exist today? Or are we, should we seek after these gifts? How many of you would like to discuss that question? How many of you? A few of you? All right. We'll talk about it in two weeks. All right. So come back. For the sake of painting our picture of a truly spiritual church, we're going to dive into some of those questions in two weeks when we get to chapter 14. Cool? So come back. All right. So how do I know then what my spiritual gift is? How do I know what my spiritual gift is, you might, you might say? Um, should we take all of the spiritual gifts in the Bible and kind of compile them and turn them into a test maybe? a spiritual gift inventory, if you would, and, and pass it out and hand it out, and you can, sort of like a personality test, you can fill in the blanks and, and you can find out what your four or five spiritual gifts are, so that way, Lord forbid, you serve in a capacity that you shouldn't be serving, all right? I don't think so. I don't think that's the best way to discover what your spiritual gifts are. I don't think God intended to give us spiritual gifts in the Bible just so we could put a test together to find out what our spiritual gifts are. How do we discover what our spiritual gifts are? Well, let's think about it. In verse 7 it says that the spiritual gifts exist in each one to build up the church for the body. Which means then that your spiritual gifts are not for you, but your spiritual gifts are for the common good of the body. So now how do we determine what our spiritual gifts are? Through being in the body. Through coming together. Through gathering with one another. You want to determine what your spiritual gifts are? You don't know? Here's how you do it. You come and you gather with the body. And after we dismiss, you stick around with the body. And you listen to people. And you share with people. And what happens is this. You begin to operate in the gift that God gave you without even realizing it. You begin to just simply discover your spiritual gifts as you use them. Alright, so... The church or the, the spiritual church is a, is, it consists of people with a diversity of spiritual gifts. Third point, in one body. So diversity in unity. Look at verse 12. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. So while there's diversity in the Trinity, there is great unity in the Trinity. This, that's why individualism today doesn't mesh with Trinitarian diversity. But this is a diversity that exists for the sake of oneness. So therefore, we're going to move on, therefore, the members of this body ought not be jealous. Look at verse 15. He says, if, if, uh, if, if the foot, what if the foot were to say, well, I'm not a hand, so I don't have any place in this body. Or what if the ear were to say, I'm not an eye, and so, so, so I don't have any place in this body. I wish I was an eye and God has just made me an ear. Paul says, what if the whole body were an eye? 
My kids watch this movie called Monsters, Inc. And there is this beastly creature in this movie um, that is an eyeball. That's all he is, okay? And I remember the first time I watched Monsters, Incorporated, I thought to myself, man, if, that, if this little beastly creature existed in real life, this would be problematic. Alright? All he is. Have you guys seen it? He's just an eyeball. I don't know how else to say this. He might have feet. So I might be a little wrong. Maybe some little hands coming out the side. I don't. But he's pretty much just an eyeball. Alright? This would be problematic if he existed in real life. I don't know if he does. I don't think so. But maybe in your dreams. I don't know. Is the movie real? He's an eyeball. Paul, Paul may, maybe he was watching Monsters, Inc. with his nephew when he decided to write this. I don't know. Like, oh my goodness. That would be problematic. What if everybody was just an eyeball? I'm, God's speaking to me here. This is essentially what he's saying. It it's a ridiculous, comical picture. Yet we come together and we actually think like this. So we then get jealous because I don't have the gifting that this person does. I don't speak in the way that this person does. Because maybe uh, uh, I'm not on the stage. Or I, I'm, not, I, I, I'm not leading music. You know, in my, one of my previous ministries, there was a, uh, a person in the ministry who said that they in order to operate in the body and to utilize their gifts, they need to be leading music. Now, unfortunately, this person neither had the, the, the uh, natural gifting to lead the music, and he didn't have the spiritual gifting to lead the music. But his mindset was, if I can't, and he literally said this, then what do I do? If I can't be up front, if I can't be on the stage, if I can't be seen then what do I do? What place do I have in the body? I'm not like these kinds of people. So therefore, I don't belong in this body. This is a place where, where um, there, there's not a lot of prayer happening. And I have this spiritual gift of prayer, and so I need to go find a body that values prayer. Whoa, 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 wait a second. Maybe this body doesn't value prayer because you haven't been part of it yet. Don't you see that you are uniquely gifted and fitted to be part of this physical body? God is sovereign. You are not here by accident. You are here because God has a particular gifting that He has given you that we as a body need. So therefore, there is no room then. There's no reason to feel out of place or to feel I don't belong or to feel jealous. So whether you're gifted in prayer, whether you're gifted in faith, whether you're gifted in encouragement, whether you're gifted in verse 28, we see administration. My goodness, we can use some of these gifts here. Whether you're gifted in teaching, we are not jealous of other members because they serve in a different capacity. Number five, so we are not jealous and members are also not proud. He says here in verse 21 if the, how ridiculous it would be if the eye said, I have no need for the feet. We don't, we don't do that with our bodies. Look at verse 22. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we give them greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Which are more presentable, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. This is amazing. I mean, this is humbling for anybody who serves in a visible capacity in the church. You see, one of the things that, uh, that P. 
people that serve in my role, including myself, one of the lies that we tend to, tend to f- believe is that, um, that we are the most indispensable role in the church. Like if I were to leave, things would fall apart. If our leaders in the church, our Sunday school teachers, our house community te- leaders, if they were to leave, then everything would fall apart. One preacher said that the most humbling experience of his life was when he left his church and they did fine without him. Guys, this is exactly what Paul is saying here. Don't be duped into a fake understanding of spirituality. What he's saying is this. The parts of the body that are most visible, and I know you guys don't believe this, but we have to trust. The parts that are most visible, he's saying, are the most dispensable. But there are these invisible members of the body that we can't lose. Think, think of just your own body. Your, your arm versus your kidneys. All right? If I pulled out a knife right now, let me take a drink. And I said, would you rather me cut your arm off or cut out your kidneys? And you had to choose, all right? You had to choose. What would it be? Everybody says your arm? Somebody says your kidneys? No, you had to choose. All right. Where's our ushers? <laughs> Here, your, your arm, though it is the most uh, visible, you think about it more. If you're muscular like me, you get a lot of compliments. <laughs> Your arm is more uh, dispensable than your kidneys, which are weaker, which are invisible. They're hidden. Nobody prays, man, you've got some nice kidneys. (laughs) You've been working out. (laughs) Nobody does that, but you don't want to lose them. This This is exactly what he's saying about the church. He's saying that there are people in this church that you know nothing of. There are people in this church who have the gift of faith that are like a, 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 a lifeline pumping blood into the visible members of the church. There are people who are uh, constantly on their knees in prayer for you and for other people within the church. Prayer warriors. There are people who have these more secret and silent and quiet roles of service within the church. And if they were to leave, what Paul is saying is that the body would die. Now let's just sit with this. I want to really understand this. I am dispensable. I'm not like preparing to turn my resignation in. This isn't what this is about. But I could leave tomorrow. And I'm not the most crucial member of this body. So what does this mean? Well, for those of us who are in these more visible roles, what it means is this. There is no room for pride. Oh, you have the gift of teaching. Whoopee-doo. You're dispensable, my friend. You have a visible role. You've got some swagger. You can can stand up in front of a crowd. You're dispensable. We don't want to lose you. It's like losing your arm. That would be bad. But you're not the kidneys. You're not this, this, this organ that's pumping blood into the visible members, keeping them alive. And so a spiritual church consists of people with a diversity of gifts in one body, who then, because of that, are not jealous, and also they are not proud. And they serve one another with joy. 
Look at verse 25. He says that these members have the same care for one another. They suffer with each other. They rejoice together. Meaning that they joyfully serve each other. Think of all that it requires for you to sign your name on a piece of paper. Think of how the members of your body in that moment are serving one another so that task might happen. Your eyes serve your brain as it locates a pen and paper. Your brain serves the nervous system as it alerts the nervous. This is what we're going to do. Your nervous system serves the muscles. I think there's 35 muscles in your hand. Which serve the tendons that pull on the bones and serve the bones. Which, by the way, the heart pumping blood serving your hand so it won't fall off in the process. Your eyes then serve your fingers as it locates a pen. And your fingers serve your brain as it accomplishes the task and picks up the pen. Your, your, your members of the, I mean, the idea of members of your body saying, I'm tired of serving. Like all I have, all, I, I'm tired of like always having to go be with the body and serve. Why can't I ever be? Like, does your hand ever say that? I'm tired of putting food into my mouth. I just need a break. I'm going to just go over here and I'm going to just kind of hang out and I'm not going to serve the mouth for a while. It doesn't make any sense. You're, you're, the members of your body joyfully serves one another, and if they stop serving one another, that's called a medical problem. And if the spiritual body stops serving one another, it's a spiritual problem. We can say this. A, a, a church, the most scariest place to be is when a church is not joyfully serving one another. We serve out of duty. We serve because we have to. We serve because nobody else will if I have to. But we don't do it joyfully. There is no greater place we can be that would say we should be spiritually scared right now. You know, I talk sometimes with nursery workers after our gatherings, and I'll go up to them and be like, oh, thank you so much for your service to the children. I love it. And they often, not always, but often they'll be like, oh, it was great. It was a joy. I don't understand that. <laughs> but, hold up, last week, I'm, for the first time in garden history, not teaching something, and I was able to serve in the nursery, last Sunday, I served with Renina. And as we're sitting there serving, I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, I see why people enjoy this. Not because I like hanging out with kids. I mean, I like kids, but it's not like my thing. But, but here's what I realized. Like, I, I realized, wait a second, we're, we're serving these parents who right now are freed from certain distractions so they can sit for a while and listen and be trained in the Word of God so that they might say with greater confidence that Jesus is Lord. And I will joyfully take my part in this body and serve in this capacity right now so that the body might do what the body needs to do to train one another, to be together, to serve, to encourage, so that we might stand together as a body and declare Jesus is Lord. Friends, if you are not serving with joy in this body, if you are whining about serving in this body, or if you are skirting around any way of, of, of being called to a service position, listen, repent of your sin and trust in Christ. And what you'll find is that serving in His body is joy.
So the spiritual church consists of people with a diversity of gifts in one body, not jealous, not proud, who serve together with joy. We care for each other. We suffer together. Just a few more points here. We suffer together. Have you ever had a toothache? You know how like a toothache affects your toenails? You're just like, man, I'm sore. <laughs> like my, I, I'm cranky. I'm irritable. This toothache is affecting everything. All right? That's what, he, that's what he's saying. Is that not true for us? Some of you don't believe that. Some of you might be sort of self-centered and you're, you have this woe is me personality. Oh, I'm just going at this thing alone. No. We suffer with you. We do. Some of you believe that your sin struggle is just your own issue. No, it's our struggle. We don't believe this. We don't see this. I, I have seen it from a pastoral perspective. Certain people fall into sin and it affects others and others fall into similar kinds of sin. I mean, we suffer together as a body spiritually. When someone falls out, we suffer because we, we have lost you. We weep over your loss. You're no longer serving the body. We lost an arm. We suffer together when you suffer physically. When you suffer emotionally. Again, we don't always see this. There are literally, I mean, I'll be like just doing something, you know, dumb. Like eating a hot dog or something. And I'll, uh, uh, waves of sadness will just sweep over me as I consider some of your suffering, some of your pain, your emotional suffering, your physical suffering. We weep for one another. We, we, we share this together. This often comes out in the way that we talk with one another, the way that we care, the way that we follow up with a text message or a phone call, the way that we pray. Suffering for one another leads us to a greater prayer life. For one another. We suffer together. We also rejoice together. And so when you got fired from your job and someone else just got hired into a new role, you somehow <laughs> are rejoicing with this individual. And you truly do. Like you're not trying, you're not faking it, but you're truly glad for the health that you're seeing in this person's life, for the body. We serve one another with joy. In our church covenant, at every members meeting, we read this together and one of the lines in the church covenant says this, we will rejoice at each other's happiness and we bear each other's burdens and sorrows. A truly spiritual church consists of people with a diversity of gifts in one body who are not jealous, who are not proud, who serve one another, with joy, caring for one another, bearing one another's burdens, and rejoicing with each other. Now, why do we do this? This is our last point. As a manifestation of Jesus. Look at verse 27. Now, you, he says, are the body of Christ. He starts his passage with Christ. He ends his passage with Christ. The Holy Spirit, when we know the Holy Spirit's moving, it's when people are saying, Jesus is Lord. And then, all, and then we come together in this way, and we are now a manifestation of Christ. We do this so that people might see Christ. We do this to be the body of Christ because Jesus is our Lord. So as we talk then about seeking the spiritual and looking for it in crazy supernatural ways or in revivals. Look, the supernatural, that would be awesome to see some, some of that. The revivals, I would love to see a true, real, spirit-condescending revival in our church. But even that serves the larger purpose of what true spirituality is all about. And that is that our lips and our lives might say, Jesus is Lord. With our lips, we come together as His body, and through our conversation, we lift Him up in the center. We encourage one another to trust in Christ, to rest in Christ, to trust in His promises. We pray for one another. In our teaching and preaching, Christ is at the center. 
with our lives. We live our lives saying Jesus is Lord. Not necessarily searching for the sensational, but how do we do this? How do we live our lives as Jesus is Lord? It's resting in Him. It's trusting in Him. It's standing in Him. You see, God sent His Son into the world to die for sinful humanity. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. He died in our place. He rose again from the dead, giving us all hope that we, whoever trusts in Him, will have a resurrection from the dead and live with God and be freed from sin one day. How do we become a truly spiritual church? What would it look like to truly be the body of Christ? People most see Jesus in us when we are most resting in Jesus. When we are trusting in Christ. When we are standing firm on His foundation. When we are saying His life Not mine. His righteousness. Not my righteousness. His sacrifice. Not my sacrifice. His work. Not my work. When we do that and we serve one another so that more of us might do that, that is when people look at us and say, this is a body of Christ. We see Jesus, a manifestation of Christ. May we be a truly spiritual church consisting of a people with a diversity of gifts as one body serving one another, not jealous of others, not proud of what God has given us, but serving so that we might care for one another, that we might suffer with one another, that we might rejoice with one another, serving with joy the body so that we might become a manifestation of Jesus Christ and others might be able to look at us and say, Jesus is Lord. That is a spiritual church. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you take these words and seal them into the heart and the lives of this church. May we come together on a regular basis and be able to reflect true spirituality as we embrace the ways that you have gifted us to serve one another, as we serve with joy, may we be able to lift up Jesus at the center so others and we may say Jesus is Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.